0: Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. Today, we have the second of two episodes dedicated to the 10 things that we can't live without. If you've spent some time just about anywhere on the internet, you've probably run into one of these videos where somebody explores the five things they can't live without And most of the time, these things are really things that it would be pretty easy to live without, like a Rolex or a latte foamer or whatever else some celebrity is on at that particular moment. But there are truly some things that it would be really hard to live without in this life. So in these episodes, we're taking this concept and we're applying it to ourselves, the key psychological skills, inner strengths. Or maybe even ideas or big concepts that Rick and I each think that it would be very challenging for us to live without. In the first episode, we talked about benevolence, patience, curiosity, self-regulation, and grit. And today, we're going to be exploring five more. So, Dad, what do you think about this?
1: I love that we're talking about this.
0: (laughs) Okay, (laughs) you.
1: (laughs) What's your number three?
0: Okay, number three for me, this has a very fancy name. It's going to sound very psychological. It's really basic. It's called cognitive restructuring. Too many syllables. I know, I know, too many syllables. (laughs) It's like that Mozart moment, too many notes. Yeah, yeah, too, too many notes, too many notes from Amadeus. If you haven't watched that movie, watch that movie. It's an amazing movie, one of my favorite movies. Okay, anyways, cognitive restructuring, if I had to turn it into like, explain this to me like I'm a five-year-old, it's basically clearly seeing all the ways the mind lies to us. Mm. It's a fundamental technique in CBT and other approaches like that. And it's also in some methodologies around uh, addiction, like 12-step programs Mm. use a lot of cognitive restructuring techniques. They'll call it like disputing your stinking thinking is a common phrase that you see around that. But it's basically disputing irrational thoughts. Cognitive distortions, cognitive biases, overgeneralization, magnifying our little issues into huge ones, whatever. You're intervening around the negative thoughts that naturally come into your mind and you're pushing back on them. You're fighting the negativity bias. You're seeing the things that your brain is saying to you when you're lying, at least if it's me, you're lying to go to sleep at night, and you just got this little voice inside the head that's like pestering you you take a moment to go, hey, I hear you. You know, the classic, like, I see you, Mara, moment. Like, (laughs) I I hear the voice. I get it. You're going to town on me. But here are all the reasons why this isn't true. And you actually actively get on your own side. And this, for me, is like such an important point because Mm. I think that a lot of people have this perception of psychology or self-help, personal development, personal growth, where one day you just wake up and you have positive (laughs) self-talk. You just wake up, and it's just there. It's like, ooh, I did it. I developed, and now I have positive self-talk. I got to tell you, at least from my experience, that ain't it. Um, Wait, wait. (laughs) You mean you have to work at it? (laughs) Every day. Every day for the rest of your life, you have to work at it. That's the way it is. Like, every day for the rest of your life. I mean, if you talk to people... Who are incredibly far down the path of like deep contemplative practice. We're talking monks, people have done this work for 40, 50 years. They will tell you, yeah, like I got stuff that pops up in my brain, but I'm not identified with it. Right. I just see it and I go, huh, that was kind of weird. Wow, isn't that interesting? And then it passes because you don't attach to it. And that for me is like the magic of, you know, this fancy phrase, cognitive restructuring. We're just not getting attached to all the negative garbage that just kind of comes wafting through our very strange brains. That's great. I even like, frankly,
1: the phrase restructuring because you yeah. you start to realize, oh, all these views, these beliefs I have, many of which kind of are in the background, we're hardly aware of, many of them are formed very early, even pre-verbally. Yeah. And then gradually a kind of languaged version of that pre-verbal belief formed when we were one years old kind of gets laid in. These were constructed, constructed. Mm-hmm. These were constructed, constructed. And what we can do is restructure them. We're creating different constructions. We cannot not have constructed beliefs, cognitions, views, and so forth But the question is, are they true and useful? Mm. And we can remodel. It's kind of like a little bit of
0: remodeling, right, inside yourself. This idea of restructuring, I think that you can apply much more broadly than the way that I framed it so far. I I think about a phrase that, again, we've used a lot on the podcast, this idea of creating a coherent narrative of childhood. Ah, That's great. And we can kind of write a new story based on the things that happened to us with the perspective of an adult. We can look back on old events and go, all right, I've always viewed it this way. But what about these other interpretations of what happened? This isn't intended to just like give us a pass on our own bad behavior in the past, of course. But just in general, often people have a very calcified view of a thing that happened based off of their sense of self, experiences, personal history up to that point. And then we keep on going. Mm -hmm. We keep on developing. We keep on growing. We keep on changing. But often that kind of perception of what happened remains kind of stuck in the brain. So sometimes it can be valuable to go back and see newly all of these past experiences that happened to us. And I think that that can be a form of restructuring as well.
1: That is a huge one. And Mm. there's a whole territory of therapy that's about narrative, narrative therapy, changing your narrative and so forth. And that's very interesting for us. And Mm. I kind of have a hunch that. There might be something interesting for you to explore there, in your own kind of story, even sometimes about childhood. Just, I just had that intuition. I'll leave it at that. But
0: yeah, no, I I think that that's been a major positive process for me, yeah. and has been one of the most fundamental things that I've been doing for my own like personal growth and development. Yeah, over the past five years-ish, I think it's really kind of kicked in in full, late 20s, early 30s, something like that. So yeah, no, it's been a a super useful tool for me. Okay, that said, what's your next one?
1: Okay, so the, the fourth one that came up was humor. And by which I mean, first, grim humor sometimes. And I'm thinking of this episode from the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid based very loosely on the Historically true, these two characters who are outlaws. And essentially at this point in the story, Paul Newman and Robert Redford, they're being chased by these implacable, relentless bounty hunters, sheriffs, marshals. And they're on the edge of a cliff. And the only escape from the people who are about to get them for Butch and Sundance is to jump off the cliff into a river that's a hundred feet below, roaring away. Mm. And The kid, Sundance kid, says to Butch, who's Paul Newman, We got to do it. We got to do it. And Butch Cassidy says, I don't know how to swim. And the kid grabs his hand and says, Don't worry, the fall will probably kill you. (laughs) And then they stand up
0: and they (laughs) leap and they make it. Got it? And yeah, that, that that's a problem for when we reach the bottom. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly right. <laughs>
1: exactly. It's <right. laughs> not <laughs> the fall; it's the landing. Uh, yeah. Bottom line, though. There's, I think, a place when we face life where we just tap into this kind of grim humor, or mm. beyond that, a basic attitude of cheerfulness—a sort of mm. cheerfulness which means not denying our depressed mood if that's there, especially a biologically yeah. grounded depressed mood, maybe because we're ill. That's very understandable, but still finding a fundamental kind of, I guess part of it is gratitude. Mm. Part of it is a sense of just absurdity. I mean, if you think about it, Forrest, it's bizarre that you have a body, like what? Oh, yeah. Two
0: arms, yeah. two legs. No, I, I think about yeah. this all the time.
1: Yeah. <laughs> or you look at parts of your body and go, Whoa. And this is without acid. <laughs> you just look at your the wrinkles <laughs> and you go, whoa. This is yeah, stone sober. What a weird looking thing. A thumb. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> There's a blessing. You just get at the absurdity. Here we are on planet Earth. How weird is that? Think about all the strange things that had to happen for us to be here. Whoa. So you just kind of bring a certain absurdity to it the circumstances that we are in that often we take so seriously and we feel like we have to play roles in. Like, then you begin to realize this is a costume ball. Mm, Everybody, mm-hmm. including the people that scare you or you think you have to please or win their approval, of, oh, they totally. roll out of bed stark naked one way or another. They're naked under all that stuff and they put on their costumes. They put on their makeup. They put on their fancy headdress. Now they start speaking the lines that have been given to them. What a stupid play. I mean, come on. Mm. Sometimes you have to act like you take it seriously, but much of the time, what a joke. So this attitude, this kind of attitude, and which includes, I'm still working on this one myself, not taking yourself so seriously.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah,
1: totally. not taking yourself so seriously, not taking life so personally, but mixing together a kind of good humor, a humorous attitude, a cheerful attitude amidst your grit. You know, if grit is only grim and depressed and dour, that's going to wear you down over time. But grit that has a certain cheerfulness in it, Mm -hmm. a certain good humor, a certain capacity
0: still to laugh, Mm
1: -hmm. mm, that's grit that will carry you a long way.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that part of where I take that, because I love what you were saying, at the end there about the kind of play of everything that we're doing. And I mean that like a stage play and how we all have our rules and our lines and our scripts and whatever. And for me, one of the most important moments in a person's life, and I think that, you know, most people have this moment eventually. And I had the experience of this like as a kid, the first time that I realized that the adults didn't know what they were doing either, that was a transformative moment for me. It was terrifying, but it was totally transformative. This idea that like the adults don't know what they're doing either. They're all just making it up, guys. And and you can start to extend that out into these very important systems. And you kind of bore down to the core of them. And you realize that not everyone really knows what's going on. Maybe nobody knows exactly what's going on. And I think that that can kind of help you approach a lot of this with a lot more levity. You know, the very staid business meeting, where everyone's around the central table and they're all wearing their suits and they're speaking in their prescribed moments. I've been in a lot of those situations, was in a lot of those situations when I worked in a more bureaucratic kind of corporate environment. And you can have a moment where you just sort of wake up for a second and Mm -hmm. go like, wow, this is weird, ain't it? Yeah. You know, much of the same way that you were talking about viewing a wrinkle and going like, wow, what a thing, or <laughs> thumb, or whatever. You know, you can, you can look at the stage play and be like, wow, this is weird, isn't it? Like if we took this out of context, we'd be like, what are these Martians doing?
1: <laughs> okay, how about you? What's your number four?
0: Yeah, so kind of right alongside that, I think we took a real turn somewhere in there from our kind of very dour, staid ones <laughs> to the more kind of open ones. For me, my fourth one is finding joy. Huh. And alongside that, taking pleasure. But I really want to emphasize joy because I want to emphasize kind of the big, explosive, not regulated mm. parts of this experience. And I've talked a lot so far about regulation and patience and like restructuring your brain and all of these very like controlled psychological skills. But exactly like you were saying, there's a real place to just let loose emotionally and fully express an appreciation. For going like, wow, life is really cool sometimes. You know, not all the time. Life can be hard. Life's often challenging. It's pretty normal for people to have to actually go out of their way to find the joy in life. But that just makes it more important to do so. And I think that this process could happen sometimes where the fact that it's hard to find the pleasure makes us kind of not want to find the pleasure. Because we just get beaten down by it. We just get exhausted. We're worn out. And it's a real act of of rebellion against that to go out of your way to like stand on your porch if you got a porch and just like howl at the moon every once in a while. Uh, You know, however you find that joy, that's probably more a way that Elizabeth would find it rather than a way that I would find it personally. But you know what I mean, right? Like, Just look for those opportunities to find the pleasures that actually help us build internal strengths. It's a very simple one. I don't know if I have a lot to elaborate on it, but I just think that the pursuit of joy, the kind of pleasure principle, if you will, has just been like such an important part of my life. And it's one of the things that's really helped me loosen up as I've gotten a little bit older.
1: You remind me of my friend and teacher, James Barris. Mm, mm-hmm. Love James. Who in the kind of buttoned up buddhist Buddhisty buddhist world created this program maybe 10 years ago called Awakening Joy, Mm -hmm. playing on the notion of awakening and joy. And he got some pushback, definitely, from different quarters. It wasn't too horrible, but people basically raising an eyebrow at a minimum saying, hey, you're identified as a Buddhist teacher. This is serious business, suffering, craving, joy. What's that got to do with it? And he pointed out that Including in the Buddhist tradition, seven factors of awakening include two that have a very strong emotionally positive quality, tranquility, which feels really good, peacefulness and bliss, bliss, Mm, mm -hmm. joy, great joy as a factor of awakening. And in the list of the five factors of concentration and moving into meditative absorption. And these are people who are hardcore. These are the Olympic athletes contemplative practice they're really serious about it one of the five major factors of meditative absorption as a gateway into non-ordinary transformative states of consciousness is in addition to bliss is happiness the word for it in sanskrit and pali is sukha the root of which is also the root of the word sucrose or sugar there's a sweetness Mm. a joyfulness in all that so one, I want to just kind of mention James' work in Awakening Joy. It's a wonderful program. It's also a wonderful book that he ended up authoring. But beyond that, it's really interesting to think about the primacy of joy as worthy in and of its own right, and also as a factor, as Barbara Fredrickson and others have shown, in resilience, in toughness, in being able to bounce back from trauma, being able to keep going in the face of challenge, to find joy along the way, joy broadly speaking, mm. And also the ways in which in many, many different traditions, joy is a factor of the absolute highest reaches of human potential.
0: I think that it's really easy in our kind of personal development world mm. to kind of disparage positive emotions in a way. Because so much of the emphasis is placed on these very kind of big constructs and big hefty ideas. Mm. And, and there's a weight behind like grit that we don't necessarily place the same weight behind joy right you know there's a lightness to it self-regulation self-regulation like very heavy you know all these like very old school stuff
1: this is where the bass drum comes in the reverb yeah (laughs) regulation (laughs) reconstructing your beliefs
0: (laughs) yep and i just think that that's like such a miss. yeah you know what i mean And it's really important every once in a while to kind of highlight like, oh, the lightness of that, but also the importance of that. So that's joy for me. What's yours, Dad? This is your final one. Final
1: one, last chance.
0: And this could sound a little bit like
1: it overlaps some of what we've been talking Mm, about mm -hmm. recently, Yeah. but really I'm I'm getting at something maybe different. Wildness. Mm. The wild child deep inside us, thinking about the kid's book, where the wild things are, Mm, mm -hmm. the sense of wilderness, the intersection between that which is well organized and regulated and properly constructed in us, all of which is important. Think of that as sort of like the city around which or under which is that which is not regulated, Mm, mm -hmm. not controlled or deliberately constructed, but that which is is wild, truly wild. And this also includes being in aspects of the world which are not human-made. They are wild. Whether it's really appreciating that gritty blade of grass coming up through the crack in the sidewalk in the city street, or it's looking up at the sky, seeing the stars, or moving out into a park or a forest or the mountains or the desert or the ocean, that you realize, whoa, there are fundamentally, inherently wild aspects of the world, of nature, that are deeply important wellsprings for us. Mm. I think there's a line, perhaps from Thoreau, maybe somebody else, in wilderness is the preservation of the earth. Mm. In Mm -hmm. wilderness is the preservation of the earth. I think that's the quote. So, For me, as a very buttoned up guy, when I was younger, especially, it's been very important to Mm. include and own that which is wild and maybe not so nice or maybe not so pure inside myself and to include it, to make room for it, Mm. to give it room to Mm -hmm. breathe and to be more tolerant. You spoke of distress tolerance earlier, wildness tolerance. Inside ourselves, mm, mm-hmm. very important, and to dust off. I think for many people, me included, things that have fed us that had a certain wildness to them: improvisational music, being out in the land, fresh air, gazing out the window, something or other that was for you. You know, cooking in new ways, mm-hmm. creativity is a form of the wild. Mm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: You and and also Elizabeth, your partner, are very creative. It's a creative edge
0: there. Yeah, totally.
1: The undiscovered country, Mm. as it were. The wild. The future as the undiscovered country. The sense of possibility. All of this. And finding those things that feed you and allow you to maybe kick off some of those costumes and some of those Mm. excessive regulations of yourself to live in what is for you more of the wild. I've always been Mm. really drawn to... Frontiers, the edges, the edges between the land and the sea, the edges between the city and the country,
0: liminal spaces, yeah, the edges between
1: you know science and ecstatic contemplative wisdom. What's the intersection there? What are the edges there? Mm-hmm. Cross-cultural travel. What are the edges there? And I'm kind of trying to talk about that here when I'm getting at the wild, yeah, including I guess just to finish, really honoring that part of yourself. It's like the pilot light. Inside us all, that kind of wild spirit, untamed, unbowed, right? And that pilot light is actually the basis for so many things that are more regulated and more constructed, but without accessing that pilot light of an inherent kind of freedom inside, mm. is what I mean. I, by wild, I don't really mean crazy or problematic or. Sexually exploitive. I don't mean any of those kind of things. I mean, more like a Mustang Mm. that's not been broken to the bit and the saddle, running free. Yeah. That's in you and that's in me.
0: That's a beautiful sentiment, Dad. And let me know what you think about this. One of the things that kind of comes to me as you say that is this idea of like patterns and cycles in life, where life in a lot of ways is. You know, whether it's the return of the repressed or whatever else we want to say from like the psychological sciences, it's about these cycles of return, Mm. you know, where we get into these various patterns. Sometimes we refer to them as social scripts. We've talked about that a lot on the podcast in the past, the patterns we get into with other people, the patterns of our relationships. And then when we start to change in different ways and break those patterns, the world often responds to that by trying to like keep us the way that we were. Oh yeah. And this to me is one of those real ways to look at truly living life rather than getting trapped in a cycle where you're just having the same day happen over and over
1: again. That's a wonderful way of broadening this or and applying it. That's great.
0: Yeah. And and I was thinking myself not too long ago of, I, I was having this experience and maybe it's quarantine related and whatever else, but where like all my days were just starting to look the same. Yeah. And it was kind of starting to bug me where I was just, even though I'm very fed obviously by the work that I do and like it's become a very fulfilling part of my life, which is wonderful, but there was this kind of monotony to the sameness of the days that I was starting to notice. And so I looked for ways to break that monotony, like what can I do Hmm. to keep it edgy, to to keep it wild, to put a a certain kind of way. And so that's been like a very useful inquiry for me and I would definitely offer it to other people as well.
1: You know, it's interesting just to apply this to something else. Yeah, please. I was talking with a friend of mine recently, uh, Gay Watson, who's an academic and who's written some beautiful books about the intersection of Western psychology and Buddhism, among other things. And she's really rebellious against orthodoxy of different kinds and doctrine and the ways that different organizations can become kind of rigid and even cultic. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we were talking about that. And uh, it kind of goes to your notion of these rhythms, these cycles of kind of expansion, contraction, expansion, contraction. And we can get caught in a contraction cycle that then becomes the new normal, including you know socially maintained and so forth. And I reminded her of this phrase from the founder of sociology, this German sociologist, Max Weber, who had this fantastic phrase with regard to the history of religious movements. And you can apply this phrase to all kinds of other things. And the phrase was, the routinization of charisma. Mm. So we have the original teacher, Buddha, Muhammad, Jesus, Moses, what have you, Maria Montessori, (laughs) Rudolf Steiner, You know, people who found a movement. And then over time, we have the routinization coming in of their teachings and turning it into some kind of orthodoxy in ways that are really problematic. And one of the things that this wildness can help, I think, is to stand against some of the problematic bureaucratizations of Charisma of awakening, of enlightenment, the routinizations of enlightenment of different kinds, and reclaim Mm. the wild spirit, the freedom of heart, the wild generosity that was present in the origin points of many, many of these movements.
0: Yeah, I think that there's something really, really important inside of what you're saying there. And I'm trying to put what I'm feeling about it into like coherent language, I think essentially you're just talking about the ways in which things become watered down over time
1: and rigid, ossified, petrified. Yeah,
0: rigid, yeah. petrified, whatever. And you do see this, this like freedom in the teaching of the original teachers, however you want to kind of frame that, yeah. like the big starters of different lineages. And you see it in, in the psychological sciences as well. If you think about, and look, like I'm not trying to sing the praises of Freud here, who is a profoundly problematic individual in like 10,000 different ways.
1: Oh, man, we should do an episode on Freud. <laughs> I like Siggy more than you do.
0: <laughs> Be nice to Siggy. We'll come back to Siggy later. Well, yeah, well, all right, we'll, we'll return to Sigmund one of these days. We'll, we'll talk about it. Don't hurt my Siggy. But like, you know, he did very important work and also had you know a BV of flaws but anyways that's a conversation for another day um but like would you see and you see f- like Freud and Jung and some of the other founders of different movements including much more modern ones like yeah. you, you know Stephen Hayes with act or whatever you see this kind of looseness and freedom yeah in the bigness of the ideas the messiness of it mm. we're like yes people complain about the messiness and they should it's messy but there's something in there that's kind of cool and loose, and yep. like, yeah, it's a little too big. But it only became what it was because it was a little too big, and then we needed to kind of shrink it down a little bit. You know, like Stephen, who we've had on the podcast, who's an amazing thinker. He created acceptance and commitment therapy, and he's one of the first people to say, like, I hate it when people are rigid act people. Yeah, you know, he said that on the podcast with us. It's like it's pretty much a direct quote from him. And I think that it just kind of displays what you're talking about here.
1: Huh, that's great. Sorry to kind of hijack it, but that whole routinization of charisma you know, phrase. But okay, good. How about that's you? How about you? What's your last one? What's number five for you?
0: Yeah, so this is last one, final one, thing I couldn't live without, not to be dour about this, but I think that if we're actually interpreting this question literally, this is probably the one that like, I truly could not live without. And I think huh. it's that way for most people. And it's finding meaning this is a big one. You can think about it a lot of different ways. Uh, Self-actualization is maybe kind of a way to think about it, but really meaning and purpose. And when we're engaged in processes of reflection, where we're thinking about ourselves, we're thinking about the world, including ones related to self-development, mental health, personal growth, you're the kind of person who listens to a podcast like ours. It's almost inevitable that at some point yeah, run into nihilism. Hmm. <laughs> like like nihilism is just a hop, skip, and a jump away. It's right underneath the surface. What do you mean by that word? So I, I mean, we, the despair, decay, it's all meaningless anyways. Who really cares? You know, we're all going to die. Okay. That's really what I mean. That kind of like...
1: Existential despair, kind of.
0: Existential dread, the yeah. ultimate emptiness of all things. Nothing matters. There's no point. Which is, yes... Yeah, To an extent, true. Yeah, nothing matters. There's no point, whatever.
1: And so you have the fast track from nihilism to hedonism.
0: Yeah, fast track. Well, I mean, it goes both ways, right? You've got a fast track from nihilism to hedonism. You also have a fast track from nihilism to depression and suicide. Right. Like, you know, it, yeah. you can go with either way with this one. Okay. And so it's really heavy stuff. It's important yeah. stuff. And I think that one of the big organizing tasks that we all have as individuals is to make some meaning of our lives. Hmm. People do this a lot of different ways. Yeah. Like you were saying, some people do it by just saying, "Screw it, I'm just going to engage my hedonic pleasures. Live fast, die young, leave a good-looking corpse. Who cares?" <laughs> cool. All right. Okay. It's not for me, but like I can in yeah. a weird way kind of respect that as an approach to life. But I think that like approaches like that are founded on the belief that it's all actually kind of meaningless. Mm. So who cares? And the more that we can find meaning in life, the further we pull ourselves from behaviors like that, the further we pull ourselves from self-destructive behavior. If we actually think that there is something that's important out there, the easier it becomes, in my view, to live our lives in a relatively moral way, including having a sense of morality toward ourselves, our own growth, our own purpose, our own well-being. And I think there's a, this line from Nietzsche. It's something like, uh, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how.
1: Oh, say that one again for us. That is so good. It's a really, really good line. I dislike a lot of Nietzsche-isms. That one's wonderful. <laughs> Same.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, Nietzsche's a complex guy. So, you know, you got to try to a carefully. But he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. Hmm. And so for me, it, just, it gets back to what you were saying about grit if we find meaning, we can have grit. It's so much easier to be gritty and engaged in our processes in life. And just to be kind of like personal and, you know, a little unfiltered for a moment here, I'm not somebody who has a naturally religious orientation. And many people use religion as their tool for finding meaning. Mm -hmm. I think that you can make a real argument that the purpose of religion kind of fundamentally is to explain the inexplicable Mm -hmm. and to kind of alongside that attempt to make some meaning from our lives. And we've had a lot of conversations, Dad, where I've said things to you at various points in time along the lines of like, man, there's a part of me that just really wishes I could believe in God, Mm. you know? And just like, wow, I, I really wish that I had that kind of natural religious orientation because I think that it would be so much easier to go through that process of finding meaning. And I'm not trying to you know, make it seem like people who are religious have just the fast track here. There are many challenges that are associated with that as well. But for me, this has been a real struggle. And because of that, I've had a real challenge through the course of my life with finding meaning. And it remains a quest for me. But I think that my challenges with it have just gone to highlight it as such an important thing to find because I have felt the absence of it at various points throughout my life. And the more that I've been able to make meaning from what I have been doing, the happier that I have been. So I just really want to highlight it as like such a central and important skill, resource, task, kind of however you want to frame it.
1: You're right. We have relatives. We have relatives I have cousins that I like immensely who are fundamentalist in their religion in a Christian way. And for them, it's crystal clear that they are living out God's plan. And the meaning of their life is an expression of some divine process, most of which is unknowable, which doesn't bother them at all. And there's a very deeply reassuring sense of meaning in that. And I respect that. I get that. Mm. I think that's that's a way. That's definitely a way. And then, of course, we have, as you know, other forms of meaning, including ones you have found, where there's this kind of combination of quality of life in and of itself. Yeah, I want to live in a way that maximizes broadly, according to my values and my, my integrity system, my quality of life. Also, meaning through service, through making a contribution independent of quality of life. And then even an element of learning, just learning in its own right, healing in its own right, awakening even broadly in its own right. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a, mm-hmm. a source of meaning. And then the question that came to me, Forrest, is that in a sense, one way that I think people find meaning or it's a framework of meaning is in terms of, we could say, the quest. Yeah, hero's journey. Coming all the way back to where I started with, journey, that along your life's journey, along your quest, what are five things you can't live without, 10 things you can't live without inside yourself. And so we have this notion of the quest. And then we have different kinds of quests, wise quests and unwise quests. We have doomed quests that keep trying to get blood from that stone, tilting at windmills, you know, Don Quixote, those kind of unwise quests. Then we have wise quests where we really want to return the ring of power to Mount Doom and Mordor to save Middle-earth, essentially. That's a certain kind of a quest. Or the quest for knowledge, the dedicated struggle to find out something important, let's say. And I kind of wonder if you relate to this yourself. I can say for myself that I, I can look down and I can look back and I can go, wow, there were certain quests that I embarked on. And some of them feel almost sacred, like they were, Mm. in some sense, why I I took birth this round to the extent that that might be meaningful. And then what happens sometimes when we have a sense of our own life's quest or a key Mm. quest being fulfilled, being fulfilled. Mm. And maybe I'll just finish and throw the ball back to you with this little bit of poem, I think from Raymond Carver, a poet, on the death of a friend of his, he wrote this really short poem called Late Fragment. And and the poem goes basically, did you get what you wanted from life even so? Mm. Even so, right? Did you get Mm -hmm. what you wanted from life even so? I did. And what was that? To call myself beloved, beloved on this earth. Mm. That's a kind of quest, right? Did you get what you wanted from life
0: even so? It's a beautiful poem, yeah.
1: Anyway, how about you? Is there a quest there? Or how do you like this framing of quest?
0: Yeah, I think that the framing is an extremely useful one. There's a line, something along the lines of there are only seven stories in the world and we just keep Mm -hmm. on telling them over and over. Yeah, You know, the the fundamental structure of the hero's journey, if you will, and that kind of very, you know, Western conception of it is something that comes up for people over and over again for a reason and i do think that it's very useful for a lot of people to conceptualize their lives in that way it's been useful for me personally to conceptualize my life in that way and yeah and i th- i think that looking back over things and making meaning of them can also be a very useful pursuit mm. you know what I, we've talked in the past on the podcast about post traumatic growth and the complexities with it but that's a classic example of you're making meaning from something that happened to you that otherwise would be very challenging to put into any kind of an explicable framework. And you're finding purpose in it, even in the things that are really challenging and hard. And I think that in much the same way, we can attempt to create kind of a story of our life and become the main character within it and all of the associated uh, ups and downs that are attached to that.
1: So we kind of come full circle. So if, if your life has this quality in it of quest, understood also that it can be enough right now continually. Okay.
0: In your quests,
1: what are some things you can't live without? Yeah,
0: totally. What are some things that help you on the road of life? I mean, that was the whole framing that we had for a book together. What are the things that you put in your backpack? What are the tools that you take with you? And so, yeah, just to kind of wrap this up, I would definitely invite everyone to consider that question and to ask themselves, hey, what Could I Not Live Without? Uh, please, if you have the opportunity to do so, share that with us. I would love to hear. We'll be making various social posts about the episode. You're welcome to contact us. It's contact at beingwellpodcast.com if you would like to send us an email. I know ancient technology relative to social media, but here we are. And like, we'd really love to hear from people. And if we accumulate enough of these, if enough people send them in, hey, maybe we'll do another episode talking about some of the key skills that other people named in their messages to us so today i had a great time talking with my dad about some of the things that we can't live without this was the second of two episodes related to the 10 things that rick and i feel like we truly can't live without the psychological strengths the inner skills The big concepts and ideas, maybe, that have had a truly enormous influence on the course of both of our lives. In the first episode, we talked about benevolence, patience, curiosity, self-regulation, and grit. Then, during today's episode, we focused on cognitive restructuring, which was kind of a fancy phrase I used that basically just means pushing back against the negative thoughts and the irrational thoughts that appear inside of our minds. Then we focused on humor, finding joy, the wild spirit, and then finding meaning. Returning to cognitive restructuring, which again sounds a little bit more complicated than it actually is, this is basically just pushing back against the negative thoughts that appear inside of the mind. It is the fundamental process by which we fight the brain's evolved negativity bias. And then alongside that, focusing on the word restructuring, it can be a way for us to form a new narrative about the things that have happened to us over the course of our lives. Maybe interpreting them in a different way or seeing them in a new light. Then for one of Rick's, he talked about humor. Maybe even a kind of almost macabre humor where you just look around and go, man, life's weird sometimes. This can include recognizing life's many absurdities and not taking things too seriously. And then alongside that, we spent a little while talking about how you can kind of step back from life sometimes and just recognize it as this kind of tragic comic play that everyone's rolling along with. All the different scripts that people are speaking from, the masks they're putting on. And you can just step back and go, wow, isn't this kind of weird? And that can really free us to just not take things as seriously and maybe even laugh at ourselves a little bit. Then, along the same lines as humor, I talked about finding joy, really focusing on the word joy rather than pleasure or happiness or something like that, because I want to emphasize the almost explosive aspects of it, the expansive aspects of it, the ways that it lets us kind of push back against some of the self-regulation that I was talking about in the previous episode— And really fully expand and take in all the elements of life that are truly beautiful and truly fulfilling, even in the midst of an often hard and challenging life. When we're living a difficult life, when times are hard, when we're getting beaten down by things, it's really easy to turn away from joy. Because we just get tired. We get exhausted. We don't want to like take in the good in the midst of things that feel really bad. It can feel extremely disingenuous. But the truth is that the more difficult things are, the more important that finding joy becomes. And even really very small pleasures can be a true refuge for us when times are hard. Then Rick closed out his list by emphasizing the wild spirit, that which is untamed inside of us all. This can include everything from pushing the envelope and going a little bit out toward the edge to actually just reconnecting with nature and being in environments that are inherently a little bit less civilized and a little bit more wild. I interpreted this as staying free at heart and not allowing yourself to fall into the monotony of constant routine where you feel like you're just living the same day over and over again without a break. Then we closed this episode, the second of our two, dedicated to the things that we can't live without with finding meaning, truly something that authentically I don't think I could live without. When we engage in introspection, when we think about ourselves, think about the world, contemplate big philosophical ideas, whatever, just all the stuff that comes up on this podcast, but also just naturally comes up for most people in the course of life, Man, it is real easy to wander into nihilism. It is easy to take a look at things and just go, what's the point? There's so much bad stuff out in the world, and we don't know what's going on anyway, and I'm just going to die and be dust, and what are we doing here? So if we're going to fight that, if we're going to stay engaged, if we're going to take joy, if we're going to find opportunities to live a good and meaningful life, We have to find meaning. We have to find some kind of organizing purpose for ourselves in order to make it out of here. People find that in a lot of different ways. Some people find it through religion, as we talked about a little bit. Others find it by thinking of themselves in terms of, you know, the hero of the hero's journey, this kind of path that we tread through life with a clear endpoint. And often we only recognize that it's the endpoint when we actually get to the end. Then there are other ways. I think a lot of people find meaning in this kind of quest for immortality of different kinds, feeling like you're leaving something behind, whether that's having a kid or creating a body of knowledge, as my dad has. Maybe even it's just helping other people or leaving a good feeling behind as a residue in the minds and experiences of others. Maybe finding meaning is just some kind of organizing idea, like feeling like you lived life on your own terms or you really got everything out of it that you could. Whatever your personal philosophy is, I think it's important to find one that works for you. So that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to this one. Thanks for hopefully listening to the previous one as well. We had a great time recording these, and they're truly some of my favorite ones that we've done for the podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, we'd really appreciate it. If you would take a moment to subscribe through the platform of your choice, we're most everywhere that you can find a podcast and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review, it really does help us out. Also, hey, you can tell a friend about it. It's one of the best ways we have to reach new people. If you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, we have a Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a couple of dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll receive a bunch of benefits in return. That's it for today's episode. Until next time, thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you soon.